on the tee, Jack Nicklaus. This is the minute the millions around the world have waited for. We will allow you to enjoy all of this. They are dancing in the pubs of Dublin. Harrington with an ace. And we have a shining star at sunset. Rory continues his run to greatness. The return to glory. Folks, welcome back to the Bogman Podcast with Johnny and Dave. 2021 is in full swing, firmly in lockdown 3.0. It's minus figures outside that we only wish we could score on a golf course at the moment, but we've something here that's going to warm you up. Uh, a man with major victories, Ryder Cups to his name, has caddied for the best in the world, uh, notably Seve and Tiger. Second in the list, and it's a, a good second, Sergio, Thomas Bjorn, Darren Clark, Lee Westwood, and currently with Matt Bitts, fresh off a win in Dubai at the DP Tour Championships. Billy Foster, welcome to the Bogeyman Podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Johnny. Nice to be, uh, to be with you. Gives me something to do in these boring times. Well, these boring times, it was, it was your birthday earlier on in the week. Um, and it was obviously the, the Christmas break. Did you get to do anything to celebrate or just have a, have a quiet one with the family? Yeah, I went down the pub and had 12 pints. Yeah. No, I didn't. I mean, <laughs> I'd have loved to have done, but no, you can't, you can't even get out to the pub. So, yeah, it was just a quiet uh, quiet Christmas, just the four of us. There's normally 16 of us, but obviously with the situation, it was, it was just the four of us. And my birthday, again, just the four of us. And quiet, but very nice. Uh, yeah, it was... Uh, it was a special night, you know, just just a family base and just a few drinks and a nice meal. So it was cool. Billy, your work though, those those things are probably a welcome reprieve, are they? From the well, I suppose what was very hectic at one time, and you're probably appreciating being home for the birthday, maybe chilling out. It's obviously Christmas week anyway. We're probably around for a lot of it, but walks in the mountains, bring the dog out, and that kind of stuff. Is that what kind of floats the boat at the moment? There's been a lot of that. Just uh, that's all you can do in it: walk and take a dog out. And uh, you know, with my birthday being January the fourth, I'm always home on my birthday. So, but you know, I've been on a 38 year stag do with the lads, so it's 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 nice to be home and have a, a bit of chill time and um, bring me back down to earth. You know, so <laughs> it, it's kind of nice. It's a it's a nice blend. You know, because I've done it since I was 16, so I feel like a bit of a gypsy, really. You know, so it's nice to have that that family base and, you know, solid foundation when you come home for a few weeks and then you disappear back on your stag do and, and uh, the hectic lifestyle of, you know, the tour and, um, and come home for a bit of sanity again. So it's, uh, it's a nice blend, which seems to have worked over the last 30 odd years. So it's, it's, uh, I wouldn't swap it for the world, really. Well, now that you've had time to reflect on the most recent stag do, which was Dubai with Matt last week, Matt Fitz, uh, just a couple of weeks ago now at this stage. You had a bit of time to reflect on it. And I kind of, what the, the joy of not having had much on the TV at the moment is we've been able to look back at that. And I was looking at that quite recently. And how, how do you reflect on it now, as, as special as that is for Matt? Because that's, that's a big one. Yeah, I mean, Matt, since I started working for him, he's had uh, six runners up. Uh, six seconds in the last couple of seasons. So it's been pretty frustrating. Not much you could do about most of them. Maybe one he should have won, but the rest have been stolen and guys shooting 63 or four the last round and 
pipped in, but you know it's it's been frustrating. But if you were going to win one, you've been knocking on the door a long time. If you're going to knock on a door, it may as well have been that one because it's the biggest payday in the, on the golfing calendar, which I wasn't aware of. As I walked off the 18th green, having won the tour, you are now. I was, yeah. <laughs> I, I literally, honestly, I, it was, you know, because it's been a frustrating few years for myself personally. You know, um, you know, first snapping my cruciate ligament and having 15 months away from the game, and then obviously finishing a great 10-year spell with Lee Westwood, um, and obviously a, a great job now with Fitz. So there's been a few years without winning a decent tournament myself with anybody so you know winning that was uh, you know normally you get quite I never really get excited these days because it's just part of getting older and experiencing a lot of a lot of things on tour but you're normally really happy and pumped up but that when Fitz won that was just sheer relief to be quite honest but walking off the last green Lee Westwood was walking onto it and I gave him a hug and said sorry about that Lee obviously pipping him to the tournament he said oh no I've won the money list I went, oh, great. He says, and you've won $3 million. I went, what? I thought it was a million. So, to win three times more than you thought you'd won within a minute of walking off the last screen was kind of nice, I guess. Happy Christmas. That's a great, great Christmas gift for sure. Um, yeah. I don't know if you, if you watched the, the round back or if you do, but on the, on the 18th, after Matt's drive got into the left rough, the... Um, yeah. The guys on commentary, I think it was Paul McGinley, um, called you the greatest caddy on tour today. How do you, how do you have respond or, or react to, to high praise like that? Like you've got a, a fantastic career that that anyone would bite your hand off of. Like when you get that kind of praise from a contemporary, does it doesn't it mean a bit more? Or or what do you what do you make of that? Oh, that's really nice to hear that. But I don't read anything into it. That's nice to him to have that opinion. Um, that's other people to judge what you do out there. But um, listen, I'm one of a hundred caddies out there that do exactly the same job as me. And what makes a good caddy out there is a good player at the end of the day. And I've been very fortunate to work for a lot of top players. So I have a reputation of being a good caddy, basically, because I've worked for great players. Obviously, you have to do your job to a decent standard to to keep hold of those jobs. But there's many lads out there do the same job as me. But that's that's nice to, to hear that from Paul or, or Wayne Riley or whoever it was that said it. But, um, you know, you're only as good as the guy you're, uh, you're carrying for at the end of the day. But it was, it was a tough, it was a tough last three holes because Fitz got off to a fast start, five under through seven. And, you know, it was pretty much had a two or three shot lead all afternoon until the last few holes and it just kept missing the fairways and it, it was it was a it was a bit of a grind the last few holes and and then to it a 20 foot putt five and a half foot pass on 17 I wanted to throw up and throw him in the lake like you know but uh, he managed to roll it in and uh, you know obviously the last hole is a very complicated hole if you're out of position you know because the, the creek weaves and wanders its way all the way up there to the green so you, you need to do your homework properly and I actually paced up I wasn't because he was coming in from a funny angle I know the commentators did something like he should hit up the left but the pin was front left so if you were hitting it in from the left you were hitting it over, over the water to a front left pin which is never a good place to come in from the easy shot was to go up the right hand side and open up the pin and just hit it in the middle of the green and use the slope to bring it back to the hole so uh, so I walked it up there, 120 yards to the, to the water itself and then added on what I thought it should be and I came up with a number, 155 yards, I wanted him to hit it. 
little bit uphill and it's his eight iron 165 out of the rough so I just said it's an eight iron up the right and he said what will it leave me I said about 102 <laughs> and as we got up there he actually had 102 which I couldn't believe but <laughs> uh, yeah it worked out really well but uh, you know that's that's part and parcel of you know doing your homework properly and you've got to in those situations you need to portray confidence and um, be a hundred percent accurate in what you're telling your boss and guessing ain't good enough, you know, 95% ain't good enough because if there's any doubt, not only you're not sure yourself, but your boss can feel it itself. So if he's got 100% confidence in what you're telling him, then he can ex execute the shot to, you know, the, the right manner. So it worked out well, but it was, uh, it was a tough finish. That's it's interesting because, as you're saying, the coverage has been great and it's been on recently. And without the crowds, what we're hearing now is the conversations. And we're hearing it in depth as well. And I was of the opinion that you were working unbelievably hard yourself mm. to be that person for the last three holes because there was a tough shot in 16 with water long and you hit it into it the horrible. region. And it was oh, horrible, out of a horrible light. And the, and and the you, chip shot on 17 was horrible because it was snarling into the grain. You could easily duff it, which Laurie Cantor did. Yeah. You know, it was... Is some difficult shots coming home. Yeah, and then 18, like, it felt like he did on... I, I, you had the conversation, as you said, the 155, and I remember the yardages because you could hear it so clearly, and the conversation over the third shot on 18 then was, was fascinating because it felt like he, he wanted to hit something else and you nearly took the bag away from him, did you? No, it was it was just a case of we, we decided, you know, there was nothing for going at the flag. Yeah. Because... Right of the flag, you had more backstop because the slope sort of like angles further away from you, the further right you go. So hit it in the middle of the green. And also, um, if you hit it out of the flag, there's water just left if you pulled it a little bit. And if you landed it by the hole and it spun a lot, there's a, there's a big false front there. So it could have spun off the front of the green and you've got a chip and put. So the easiest player was to hit probably 10 yards right of the hole. But we were sort of like in discussion. I wanted him to try and hit something to take the spin off it a little bit. I didn't want it spinning, fizzing back off the front of the green. So that's where we were at. And we, we kind of had the number and I was trying to add three or four yards more on to land it past the hole to allow for the spin instead of landing it by the hole, etc. So it was, yeah, we probably made it a little bit more complicated than the shot was, but you're only trying to make sure you do not make the big mistake at, at, at the death. You know, at the end of the day, it was a $2 million shot. So, so you, you, thought was, yeah, you thought it was a million shot. <laughs> I thought it was about a $400,000 shot, but it was a $2 million shot. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, it worked out well in the end. But, yeah, it was uh, it was a complicated last four or five holes for sure. So what was written about, I don't know if you're into your horse racing, but what was written about AP McCoy, as he said, of his four-odd four thousand winners, two and a half thousand, he was, he, anyone would have won on top of that horse. There was fifteen hundred that only he would have won on. Now, yeah. how much? Now I know you've been disingenuous a little bit in yourself and saying you had good players, but when you see how well you held Matt together, and I, I do believe that you actually held him together, and like because it was incredibly tough, like to be to be in that situation. That is there ones like that that you just go, "Jesus, I that was that was a lot. Of that was me." And you don't you in your own head you just want to be 
all about the team, but knowing I made, I played a massive role in that. And which which ones were they? Because that was one I felt. And has was there other situations like that that you felt that was that was me? There was, there was one situation that I couldn't believe I did it. <laughs> and would you ask me would I do it now? Not a chance. And it was actually with Seve. And Seve had a two-shot lead playing the last hole at St. Melian uh, for the Benson and Edges International, 1994. And he had a two-shot lead over Nick Faldo playing the last hole. And he was in the middle of the fairway. And I can still see the yardage now. It was 187 metres which is about 205 yards. You know, and it's five iron, roughly that distance. You know, it was it was a bit dull and miserable. The pin was front left, cut over the water. And I just knew this is right on his limit for a five iron. Now, to me, with a two-shot lead, it should have been hit it right half of the green. And he can even three-put it and win the tournament. But I know Seve's going to go over the water at it. And if he misses any of this five iron, it's coming up in the water shore. So in mind, it was 187 metres. Says Billy, how far we have? I said, he got 193 metres. Okay, you like the four iron? Yeah, I said, it's just a nice smooth four iron, like, you know. <laughs> and hit it about five yards past the hole and two put it to win. Um, and as he hit on the green, I said, I give you the wrong yardage there on purpose by five metres. And he was, oh, Billy, your son of my bitch and all this, like, you know. He wasn't impressed, but, but I gave him the wrong yardage on purpose to make sure he hit the four iron instead of the five. <laughs> and it came out smelling of roses but I mean if it had hit over the green I'd have been in the doghouse like, but I didn't ever have told him then anyway but, but yeah I genuinely did that which I couldn't do that now but I don't, I don't know I must have been full of confidence in them days I don't know Was Sevi that type of character that you, you could kind of play those games to get the most out of them almost like a jockey does to get the most out of their ride is that something that you, you did with him regularly? Every player is different eh? um, you have to to learn to, ju- to judge their character and the mood swings and you know I'm a bit of a clown and I, I like to have a bit of a laugh on a golf course but for that one minute where you have to be serious I'd like to think I'm as serious as anybody but um, you know you've got to portray the confidence and, and, and discipline and be 100% confident in what you're doing you know and um, make the right decisions because you win tournaments by eliminating mistakes not by in the glory club or getting the great shot you, you win tournaments by making less mistakes than anybody else and um, yeah but every player is different and you have to adapt and, and work things you know you might say something to Seve Balasers that he loved and you'll say it to Sergio Garcia and he hated it uh, so you have to you learn very quickly to adapt to the mood swings more than anything else and the way they react to certain situations so it's, it's mind games you know and you are a an on-course psychologist, punch bag coach, as well as a caddy on a golf course. You, you need to be ready for anything that's going to be thrown at you. And you need to plan ahead, you know, you need to sort of like, you know, I might be on the green before while he's putting and I'm already thinking about the next tee shot, where the wind is, how far you want to land it, where the bunkers are, etc. So when he gets on that tee, Billy, what do you like? I've got an instant answer. You know, you can't be sort of like, taking 10 seconds to think about, oh, hang on a minute, I'm just thinking, well, that's not good. You need to be one step ahead. You know, it's like a, a snooker player thinking about the green as he's putting the last red to go for the black, to go for the yellow and the green. You know, it's like you've got to be planning ahead all the time. So to be switched on and, and have the right answer without looking as though you're scrambling for, you know, scrambling for the answer, basically. 
And with Matt, Matt's, Matt's a bit younger now. Uh, so you would have gone from Lee, which you, who you're tremendously successful with. You brought Lee to the age he is now. And Lee, like you were saying that the needs changed in terms of what Lee wanted from a caddy. And he is something different with, with Helen's story now. And what, what's Matt like? Oh, listen, Matt's, Matt's a 26-year-old lad, uh, but he's got a 35, 40-year-old mind. He's very, very disciplined. I call him Bernard Langer's love child because he is like the most professional player I've ever worked for. You know, you look at Seve or, or Westy or Devin Clark or Garcia or... Fitz is the most professional player with the effort and his, um, his homework that he does himself and takes control of situations. He, 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 every shot he hits on a practice ground, he's noted or he's doing a, a challenge against the track man, how far it's gone, how far Riot is. You know, the trajectory, the spin, he, he makes notes of everything. He's unbelievably disciplined and, and almost a little bit too much at times. But So, and, and he has his own yardage book. So we're bouncing off, you know, he's doing his own work, I'm doing my own work, and we're comparing what we're thinking together. And it's the first time I've ever done that because I've always, you know, whether it be Seve, Westy, Garcia, Clark, or... Even Tiger, when I worked for him, you know, I did all the, the maths and the, the notes and the yardages and everything, but with Fitz, we, we do it together and um, we come up with an answer together. Um, not knocking any of the other blocks, that's just the way that he works. And, you know, and Lee now has got to a stage that, you know, Lee's an old dog, he's 48 in April and he's, he's done everything, he's been world number one. He, he's clued up, he don't tell, he don't need me to tell him what to do anymore and, and, and felt as though, and I knew it was time to, to change, you just knew that he he wanted to do things a little bit differently, and um, you know he'd had a a few setbacks off the golf course, and that's all behind him, and he's, he's really happy in his life, and he's met Ellen, and you know she's probably stronger than me, and 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 he has a laugh with her, and he's more relaxed on the golf course. He don't feel as though there's any pressure, and he just plays and enjoys it, and he's starting to put better, and and you know his results are showing it lately as well. So it's been great for Lee. And um, been great for Fitz. So it was the perfect result in Dubai. You know, Lee winning the, the money list and, and Fitz winning the tournament. So it was it was good to see both of them doing well. The four you looked the the photo on eighteen at the four you there was actually was was pretty good to be honest. There's a a nice kind of almost changing the guard. Now you're saying Matt's really professional. Do you feel the the need to actually nearly pull him back out of that in a round to get him? more relaxed and talk about football. You're from just up the road, basically. Your neighbours, like... I'm a bit of a clown out there. and make no bones about it. I walk around with the Jesses out on half the time. I can't be serious all the time. But, you know, when you're making decisions, yeah, I'm very serious and, and very professional as, as I can be and portray a calm persona, you know. But, but walking down... I can't say some of the stuff I say walking down the fairways, <laughs> but I'm... <laughs> But yeah, I have a laugh and joke. We talk a lot. He's, he's really, Fitz is really into his football. Um, unfortunately, he's not enjoying it right now. We've been to Sheffield nope. United. No, nope. but uh, <laughs> but he was loving it the year before last when Sheffield United beat Leeds to the last spot to get to the Premier League. But we have a lot of banter with the football, and he's he's a genuine proper fan. So we uh, we talk a lot about that, and, and more than other things that you know, have a laugh and a joke out there and try and keep mm. him relaxed. You know, but yeah, we need to. Uh, Kill him out a little bit at times, but um, yeah, he's a very, very professional player. He's got a big future. Yeah, no doubt. He's now actually so at a career high of 16th in the official world rankings. 
Um, yeah. So with that, he's the fifth top ranked European and of, as such, the Ryder Cup has come, it will more than likely become calling for him again. Um, you've, you've had, this will be, if you're, if you're going there, which you more than likely are, this will be your 15th Ryder Cup? Well, yeah, I've, I've actually caddied in 13 and, and been an assistant as such uh, in one of them. Yeah, I've, I've been to 14 Ryder Cups, yeah. So we were talking to Darren Reynolds previously about, about how special they are. Can, can you just give us an insight as to, because your, your first Ryder Cup was with uh, Gordon Brand Jr. Right. Now, seven, Millfield Village. First time Europe won in America, so it was pretty special, yeah. So that's that's a, a unique first experience at, at a Ryder Cup. And you've had yeah. you've had a lot more a lot more wins, obviously with Europe dominating the Ryder Cup. Well, since those days Europe have been brilliant and they you know, I think America have only won it I don't know how have they won it three times in the last twenty years. They won in ninety one, ninety three, ninety nine, two thousand eight. 2016. So they've won it five times in 30, 30 odd years, three years, or whatever it is. So, yeah, we've uh, had the best of European times while I've been involved in it all. So, it's been great. <laughs> yeah, you yourself have been involved in, in a lot of special moments as well. I guess you were, you were on Darren Clark's bag in, in 06. You took the words out of my mouth. That's what I was going to say. Out of all the, um, all the Ryder Cups, the care club for me was the most special one. Unfortunately, I missed Medina because I snapped my cruciate ligament a few months before, so I couldn't go to Medina, which obviously would have been unbelievable. Uh, but for me, doubling the care club was so special. You know, six weeks after Darren's wife passing away, you know, walking to that first tee with the the cheers and the, the emotion and the atmosphere of it all. I actually started crying in the middle of the first tee and I've never cried on a golf course before. And I carried for Thomas Bjorman. He left it in that bunker three times at the Open when he, the claret jug was in the bag and I didn't even cry then, you know. But uh, I found myself crying on the first tee at the Care Club. It was in- incredible. And to, you know, I've, you know, I've been fortunate to carry for players that have won 45 tournaments or so and 14 Ryder Cups. Um, and if I had to choose one moment out of my whole career, you know, even Tiger, um, the one moment out of my whole career would be hugging Darren Clark on the 16th green at the Care Club, having won the Ryder Cup uh, with Darren in floods of tears. And that would be the one moment that I'll, I'll cherish and take to the grave, you know, for the rest of my life. It was, it was an incredible experience. Was that, was that just for Darren? Was it for yourself that you'd done it together? What was it? Is this just been best of friends? Listen, it was mainly Darren, um, you know, doing what he'd done and played 3-1-3. Um, just the atmosphere around that particular green. I mean, the grandstand was huge. And the, you know, I don't know how many thousand people around that green, but the atmosphere, um, you know, just the raw emotion of it all. And, you know, it, it hold about a 100-foot, well, maybe an 80-foot put on the 12th to go four up. And, you know, if I had been a jockey, I'd have been done for excess whipping down the last few holes with Adam because I could tell he'd gone. He'd absolutely gone. Um, I could see his mind drifting away and he was thinking about the end result and Heather and everything. And I actually told him to tie shoelaces up on the 13th tee and buy himself another 30 or 40 seconds. Just take your time and slow your heart rate down. And it was, 
that was tough. And uh, Zach Johnson gave him like a two and a half foot put, I guess, on the 16th to win the game three and two. And I think there'd have been more chance of him putting it in the River Liffey than all in the put, to be quite honest. But it was, <laughs> yeah, it was just the raw emotion of it all. I'll, I'll never forget it. It was incredible. It's a one rider cup, I must say, that you can never enjoy a rider cup because you're always looking at that scoreboard and there's red, blue, and it's just, you're always seeing a horrible scenario. But you can only you can only win your match and win your point. But that day, the whole scoreboard was blue and it was like the last nine holes was just the one rider cup where I could just really take it in and enjoy the absolute spanking the Yanks were getting. It was uh, it was special. It was the um, it's 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 a lasting memory specifically in a lot of Irish golf fans. For for a lot of Irish golf fans, you. There's the the image of yourself hugging Darren on on the 16th, and although he didn't technically sink the winning putt, I think a lot of us have that image burned in our mind as if as if he did, just because of the huge the huge emotion that that was that was on on show. Um, it's it's definitely a special moment for for golf fans as, as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you're on that green, you're thinking he has just won the Ryder Cup, but. Because the scoreboard, you know, we're, yeah. we're, we're not watching TV where Henrik Stenson's hold the putt probably 25 seconds in front of him and, you know, David Howley, whoever it was, had hold the putt and whatever. But I think Stenson actually got credited with winning the um, hole in the winning putt. It was literally by seconds. So, but yeah, it, it didn't take away from what was actually happening in real time, you know. Not at all. Not at all. Hopefully there'll be a few more, a few more Ryder Cup memories now coming in whistling straits um with that is with, with with that now and then the year ahead with the whistling straits being the the host venue will that dictate your season ahead now we play more pga tour than than european tour to kind of get used to american american golf it will change match schedule one iota interesting no i mean match schedule will be basically it'll start in the desert in abu dhabi and dubai and then it'll be basically all pga tour in america until you know, around the Scottish and the Open, maybe the Irish, I'm not sure, but um, certainly the Scottish and the, the Open Championship. And then it'll be back to America until August. And then it'll be mainly all Europe, you know, the back end of this season. And, you know, obviously the, the Ryder Cup will, hopefully he'll be in the Ryder Cup team and um, that'll be his last week in America, I guess. With a win. We'll see. I mean, uh, the US team's in, incredibly strong, incredibly strong. Um, but, you know, like I said, in all those Ryder Cups that I've done, there's not many times that you can go and say, well, Europe's the favourites. They've always been the slight underdog or the big underdog and always managed to uh, to do the hard yards and turn them over. So, you know, but they have got some exceptional players right now. So it's going to be difficult, but... Listen, it's one round of golf and who's got the biggest cojones and the world's of putts on the day. So strange things can happen in a Ryder Cup. And we've certainly got enough good players. That 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 schedule is fairly full. Um and there's a lot of travelling in that. And let let's kind of compare it to I suppose the old days where you might have been you hear stories of lads sleeping at the back of ranges and the only thing they had with them was a trundle wheel and, and that's what they did. Do you prefer, uh, I suppose, now to then where you're a little bit older, so that means you're away from the house more, or 
as you said, the 38-year stag. What, what, what way is it now with Matt? Because every, every team that players have is, is very, very different to how it would be before. <laughs> you, I can't even begin to explain. Well, I can't explain it. But well, I'm fine. Let's try. When I first started caddying, a caddy couldn't afford to get in an aeroplane, first and foremost. So I got on a bus in Bradford, overnight bus at midnight to Heathrow, and then, well, not to Heathrow, to Victoria Station in London. And then you get an interrail pass, which was 120 quid or something for a month. And you could travel on the train. So you, you, you would get on the train all over Europe, sleep on trains, and, you know, you stayed in the, the worst hotels, hostels, that, you know, rats had come in and scream and run out. You know, it was horrible. Slept in a bush one night. You'd hitchhike. There was no range balls. You'd stand in the middle of the range getting hit by balls. You'd walk the streets for hours, knocking on the door like Mary and Joseph, trying to find a room at the inn. Sorry, there's no room. Because obviously there was no mobile phones, no internet, you know, no credit cards. You know, there was, you weren't allowed in the clubhouses. Like I said, no range balls, no courtesy cars. It was, it was a tough, tough existence, you know. And now, you know, you're finding guys travelling with the bosses on private jets and, you know, driving nice cars. And But I'm finding at the minute, it's actually, right now, it's so easy to travel. You know, it's been pretty difficult the last few years because you're going here, there and everywhere. And, you know, and you always, a caddy pays his own expenses. You know, so you, you know, you pay for your own flights, your own hotels, you know, your food, your beer money you know, buy the yardage books, etc. Everything's done by laser now, which is makes a caddy's job easier. But certainly at the airports, there's nobody there. You get on the aeroplane to America, 400-seat aeroplane, there's probably 30 people on it. You get to passport control, there's nobody in the queue. So instead of three hours to get through, it's taking you 25 minutes. So, And then you get to the golf tournament, and there's no baba booey and mashed potato and all that rubbish, because there's no fans. So it's actually great at the minute. <laughs> It's an ill, it's golf's an great without the fans. Yeah, yeah, traveling the golf's great at the minute. Yeah, ill wind that doesn't blow somebody some good, I suppose. At least you're getting it after all this, after 38 years. Well, to give you a clue, like I said, you know, I traveled to Portugal in 1983, 1983, caddy for Tony Johnson. Bearing in mind, you know, like I said, the caddy pays his own expenses. Get to Portugal, caddy for Tony Johnson, he finished seventh in the golf tournament which now, seventh in a golf tournament, might be 100,000 quid, you know. He finished seventh, he won 900 pounds, and I got 5%, 45 quid. And my wage was 50 pound, I think. Now, that might have been 80, and I think it was 80. I think it was 50 quid, 80 if you made the cut. So 80, finished seventh, 45 quid percentage. So my whole wage that week was 125 quid. Get yourself to Portugal, pay your own expenses, have a great week, and your wage is 125 quid. You're still losing money. That's why there was no caddies. So, uh, and, uh, and then you're getting hit by range balls because there's no range balls. And, and that's the other thing. There was no yardage books. So you had to walk the golf course for six to seven hours drawing your own yardage book with a trundle wheel. You know, it was, uh, it was a tough, tough existence. But I won't swap it for the world because the camaraderie with the boys... 30, 40 caddies travelling together on the train to the next tournament for a day and a half. You know, it was great times. Uh, it was tough. I, w- I couldn't do it now, but, you know, I'm glad I did it. It makes you appreciate everything we get now. You know, it was uh, good, good times. 
over over lockdown podcasts have have become popular but the tour caddy experience guys have been brilliant and that was the first insight that i got and it's a, a kind of a collection of guys from your era wobbly yourself and a few guys and the insight into how much crack it was for you guys yeah. was was the, that was the reason you stayed doing it wasn't it it wasn't for money well i started getting just to to travel europe for a couple of years uh and to learn more about the game to make my own game better that's the only reason i did it i probably carried for well, i'll probably say six years without making a penny you know and then um i was about to knock it on the head in 1990 and i told gordon brown jr who i was, who I was working for i said gordon i'm going to finish at the end of the season so i'm giving you six weeks notice uh, I'm not going to caddy next year. I'm, I'm, I've been offered a job as an assistant pro, funnily enough, at uh, Ilkley Golf Club in West Yorkshire. And um, like three weeks before I was going to finish, Seve asked me to work for him. So assistant pro or Seve Ballesteros, you know, it wasn't a tough decision. So that's <laughs> no. another 32 years down the road. I'm still, I'm still caddying, like you know. So you nearly lost you. I had this vision. I had this vision of, uh, you know, next next year's well, this season will be my thirty ninth year. So the season after, obviously, will be my fortieth. I want and I was going to say forty years and out. That's it. It's enough. And uh, you know, settle down and do what I want to do. But after this lockdown and all that, I've been bored. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, I'm carrying as long as I can. Like, you know, I'm not going to be a fluff cat, but. <laughs> Yeah, what age is he? He looks a hundred. Seventy. Seventy. You've said that you, know. you want you want the and I reckon you have the man who can win an open. Um uh, well we'll see, won't we? A bit of a jinx. I've finished second about four times, so yeah. we'll see. We'll cross that bridge when it comes to it. But yeah, I'd uh, I'd swap every tournament I've ever won with anybody for a claret jug. That's how much it means to me. I've been to every open since I've been nine years old. Not missed one. 45 years, 46 years. Been to every open since 1975. Can't wow. So it's wow. a one tournament. The one tournament. Obviously, Thomas Thomas had it won, basically. Yeah. He actually he left it in a, he left it in the bunker the first round on the 17th and hit the sand in anger. And he came off, he says, Can you believe I double bogged that? I said, Well, you didn't double bog it because you just hit the sand in anger. It's a two shot penalty. You've just made an eight. Oh, fuck. So he actually hit less shots than anybody else at the open. He just didn't get a claret jug with it. Oh my god! Yeah, and then obviously Westy Turnberry three put the last and finished with two or three bogeys, which was very disappointing. So and Darren Clark, obviously a couple of close calls with him before he won it. So yeah, it's uh, it's, it's, it's been a tough one for me that the open. But hopefully there's one left before I pop my clogs. Yeah, you um. You you mentioned there that um, that Sevy got in touch. You were what what age? So you're mid twenties then. I'd have been twenty five. Twenty five. What's that like? Um, you you gave the tour of your of your office there before we before we jumped on the pod, and you've got a framed letter from from Sevy where he, I would say he asked you to join his team, but there. Were, after giving you a vague compliment, I saw a video that he goes into a list of demands before actually offering you any kind of position. 
Yeah, basically, it just says along the lines of, Billy, I've been watching you over the last few weeks and I like your attitude. Is, uh, you know, nice bit of praise. And then it was, now these are my conditions. You can't do this. You must do your own yardage. You can't copy anybody else's. You can't argue on the golf course. It's good to talk after the round. You can't speak to the press. You can't do this, can't do that. All right, bollocking for the next three paragraphs, you know. And this is what I'll play you. Let me know if you're happy and see you next season, basically. That was it. Happy Christmas to the Grand Senor. It was <laughs> it's a funny letter, yeah. Did he actually then offer you or ask you to come join the team or was it just say, here are my conditions, agree to them? Yeah, agree to him and speak to my manager and I'll see you next season, basically. He was, he was pretty much offering me the job and if I was happy with everything, the job was mine. So I don't know anyone who would say no to those terms, to be fair. No, it was my boy Odero, so it's, uh, it's your dream job, you know. Um, if you ask me... You know, when I was 25 year old, what would be the favourite job you could ever wish to have in your life? You know, flying Concorde or, I don't know, caddying for Seri Ballesteros. That'd be your dream job as a boy, wouldn't it? Definitely. So to have that opportunity, I, I thank my lucky stars that I, uh, you know, a humble lad from Keithley, West Yorkshire, to be offered your boy Odero's job is, is not normal, is it? No. So, it seems like a little bit of the, little bit of short game magic is brushed off on you though from a few clips that went out middle of the summer this year that luckily Westy <laughs> filmed for you as well now I won't ask how, I won't ask how yeah I won't ask how you got into the lake he thought we were going to fall in the lake I think yeah and I, <laughs> yeah. I managed to get it up and down out of the water just to uh, spoil his bit of fun but yeah he, he, uh, he put it on Instagram or whatever it was so yeah and you got plenty yeah it's funny that uh, five years working for him you can still see all the shots. You have, you, have a, you have a feeling for a shot, whether you're deep in the trees or tough chip shot. You can see the shots. It's just ingrained in me. I can't play them myself, but I can advise the guy I'm working for what I'm actually seeing. It's, it's weird, you know. I do see shots that other people might not. It's, it's, it's rubbed off on me, yeah. So you think to yourself, what would Sevy do? Yeah, no, not really. I, you just see it. You just see it, and it's like, yeah, I see that now, yeah. And it's like, yeah. If the grand senior stood at the side of me saying, Billy, this is what I'm doing, you know. So yeah. We've had a couple of arguments, a couple of powers in my time that I advised him against it, the famous one in Switzerland. Switzerland. Where he was behind the wall and I told him four times to chip it out sidewards and Billy, why I listen to you? you you're the caddy. I, I'm the player now. Piss off, basically. <laughs> and he pulled off the best golf shot I've ever seen in my life. And it was crazy. Was he a gap in the canopy? Was that it? In the trees? Well, he hit over an eight-foot wall uh, with a... <laughs> There was a gap in the middle of the trees above the wall, the size of a dinner plate, about 10 yards in front of him to the left. And uh, I mean, 99.99% of the golfers would never even look at it. They'd just chip it out. But he saw the shot and, and pulled it off. It was, it was bonkers. You weren't going to tell him otherwise. And then he managed to haul out as well. Uh, he got it at the side of the green and then chipped in for the birdie, yeah. It was hard to get down on my hands and knees and bow to him, calling him Jesus. So, yeah. Well, I mean, what, what else do you do when you see God? <laughs> Absolutely. Get down your knees and bow. Now, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I, I promise this would be 20 to 30 minutes and we've already flown way past that. Um, but I wanted to, to ask you about, about this year. Um, what, one of the things you made great use of your, of your time in memorabilia during lockdown by 
He hosted a number of of auctions and raised a huge amount of money for frontline NHS and NHS nurses and staff. How did that How did that come about? And 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 who else got involved? You know, I did a, I did a walk about well, 2009 it was. I walked from Loch Lomond to Turnbury for the Open, which was like 100 miles with the, with the tour bag on my back, and I raised 70,000 pounds wow. for candlelighters, children's cancer at Leeds, and split with the Dad and Clark Breast uh, Dad and Clark Breast Cancer Foundation, obviously for, for obvious reasons. Um, and I just had a vision of everybody seemed to be struggling, the panicking. There's, there's you know, underfunded and everything. I thought, well, maybe there's something I can do. And I just looked around the house and saw a load of things that, that were nice that, you know, I don't really need them. So I just thought, well, why don't I go online and auction a few things that people can't really get their hands on, you know, the special things. And, uh, but to me, I wasn't going to miss, going to miss them. And, uh, you know, basically raised 35,000 pounds for the frontline workers, which, uh, which was nice. Yeah. It was, Quite, uh, quite flabbergasted by the the end. I, you know, I thought I might raise five or maybe ten thousand at the best. So, thirty five thousand was a nice amount to to raise. That's um, look, that's that's massively that that's unbelievably generous, and it's that's a lovely note to kind of wrap it. And you've been unbelievably generous with your time for us as well. I think people are gonna people love hearing these stories, Billy. To be honest, I think that's like you saw with the passing of Peter Alice there quite recently that it's the storytellers in golf that they're the people that kind of endure a lot and you're a bit of a treasure from that perspective. So thank you so much for, for this. You're up there. I know you are. That's where it's going. This, that's where this is going. You're, you're destined to after dinner speak. <laughs> There's one thing they won't, they can't get me on TV. I'd be kicked off in a heartbeat. I'm not PC enough. <laughs> <laughs> I drop an F-bomb in there or something. I'll say something politically incorrect. You know, it's, uh, yeah. So, I'll just, I'll keep carrying the bag, I think. But, <laughs> yeah, but no, I do a bit of after dinner speaking and telling stories and I enjoy it actually, to be quite honest, but Peter Dallas was um, an absolute legend and um, sad to see him pass away this season. Well, keep doing this kind of stuff because people, no matter how often they hear these stories, they, they continuously want to hear them. So so for all of the people who listen, no matter what podcast they are, just just keep doing them. But listen, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to have us on. Thanks for having me. And... Uh, Let's hope all this stuff is behind us in two or three months and we can all get back out on the golf course and get down to the pub, more importantly, and enjoy his life. On the tee, Jack Nicholas. This is the minute the millions around the world have waited for. We will allow you to enjoy all of this. They are dancing in the pubs of Dublin. Harrington with an ace. And we have a shining star at sunset. Rory continues his run to greatness. The return to glory.